There's a word that has just been in my heart for weeks now, and I don't know if you've had the experience where you know God's trying to say something to you, but you haven't quite gotten it. And so you keep digging in, you keep studying, you keep meditating. It's almost like something marinating. It's just there day after day after day. Well, I've been doing that for about a month or more now. And the word is glory. I can't get away from it. And I wasn't even thinking about it when I selected the songs that we sang this morning until I was getting ready to start worship and I realized the title of the first song was Glory. Hello? And just to give you a little heads up, I've been praying and asking the Lord where we were going next on Wednesday nights when we finish coming out of bondage and going into abundance. Well, the Lord settled that for me yesterday. We're going to be learning about glory. Moses cried out to God, show me your glory. I've been praying that for weeks. I want to see the glory of God. I don't know about you. I'm not even sure what I'm praying for, but something deep down inside, I believe every man, woman, and child longs to connect with the glory of God. Nothing less will satisfy. You can have all the dazzling gizmos and gadgets and pleasures of this world. You're still going to come up short. But man, when you get a taste of the glory of God, there is nothing like it. Moses saw God in the burning bush. He went up on the mountain. He was in that glory for 40 days and 40 nights. But when he came down, later on, after all those experiences, is when he prays, Lord, show me your glory. But you know, the Lord spoke to me yesterday very clearly. And so the title of my message today is not Show Me Your Glory. That's probably going to be the title of our Bible study. But the title of today's message is, listen carefully, We Have Seen His Glory. We Have Seen His Glory. Big difference. Big difference. And we'll get to that in a little while. But if you'll go with me to that passage I'm referring to, I I want you to study this on your own because we're going to be looking at it in a lot more depth pretty soon. But in Exodus 33 is where you find Moses praying that prayer. And again, I'm going to reiterate, I believe this is the longing of every human heart. Deep down inside, it may be buried underneath drugs and pornography and unbelief and atheism and a whole mountain of other junk. But deep down inside, the heart of man is that same longing that Moses expressed. I want to see the glory of God. And you know what? It's not hard. The Bible says the whole earth is full of His glory. The heavens are declaring the glory. And when you look into the face of Jesus Christ, there you see the pure, white-hot glory of God. And so we're really, like Paul says, without excuse. 
If we go through this life and we enter into the grave not having seen or experienced the glory of God, we can only blame one person. Not your mother, not your father, not your husband, not your wife, not your boss, not the president, no one else but you. Exodus 33, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Oh, I love the Lord's reply. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Ladies and gentlemen, this may not be news to you today, but there is nothing greater God can offer you than what he just offered Moses. My presence when you've experienced the presence of God, everything else is boring. Hello? Everything else is boring. My presence will go with you. Then Moses said to him, don't you like it when you see these conversations in the Bible? God wants us to have conversations with Him. Not just one way, you know, Lord, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, do this, do this, do this. Okay, done, prayer's over. And God's there. Um, I had a few things to say, but we're gone. It's a two-way conversation. So Moses says, okay, what if your presence doesn't go with us. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Ladies and gentlemen, pay close attention to these words. What else? will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth. We're no different from any other club, any other religious group, any other body of people that's meeting someplace this morning, maybe having tea and crumpets, discussing politics or whatever. We're no different from any of those other groups except for one thing. It's not the name out front. It's not how big a Bible we brought. It's whether or not the presence of God is manifested in the midst of us. That's the only thing that makes us different. Nothing else. It's not how much Bible I know. It's not what seminary or cemetery I went to. It's whether God is with me or not. Whether God is showing up when we show up and manifesting His glorious presence. You see, this is not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. And Moses understood something that a lot of Christians don't. I once heard Billy Graham say, and I'm paraphrasing, but 
he basically said about 90% of all church activity would go on as normal without the Lord. Without the Lord. Because we've already got our programs, Sunday school curriculum, our, you know, four songs, opening prayer, closing prayer, benediction. We've got it all figured out. So we really don't need God. How sad and how scary. I'm going to tell you one thing. This pastor can't do that anymore. I beg God every week, Lord, if you don't show up, we're going nowhere. We are going nowhere without your presence and your glory in our midst. Show us your glory. Manifest your presence in our midst. We can't live without it. We're not going anywhere and we're no different from anyone else unless that is happening. And you know what? I got really good news for you. Anybody want good news today? Three people. Praise the Lord. God has chosen one place. And I'm going to have to explain this a lot more in depth on Wednesday nights when we get into it. But God has chosen, in addition to the glory that He has already displayed that fills the earth, the glory that is being declared by the sun, the moon, and the stars. His glory is everywhere, but He has chosen to especially manifest His glory in one place, and it's in the church. It's only in the church that God is going to manifest His glory. He has chosen that. And what a privilege that He's called you and me into His church. What a privilege that we can be a living stone in that temple where God has chosen to let His Shekinah glory come down and shine for the nations to see. We're privileged. We're special. We're blessed people. To be here today, to be a part of this, to be recipients of this promise, my presence will go with you. Verse 17. This is going back and forth now. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. I think about 99% of us at that point when it said, Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I'll see you later. i got to get to work now. There's something still burning inside Moses. This still hasn't satisfied him. Then Moses said, Now, show me your glory. I don't even pretend to know what the glory of God is. I've studied it. I've looked up hundreds of verses in the Bible. And if I were to come up with some kind of a simple definition, it seems to be the radiant splendor of the expression of God's fullness, His grace, His power, His mercy, His love, and His wisdom. It's something you can see. All throughout scriptures, the glory of the Lord appeared to them. They saw the glory of God. So it is something that we as human beings can recognize. We can see it. It is certainly something that transcends our natural senses and understanding. It's supernatural. And wherever you see glory, 
trust me, God is there. <laughs> God is always there when glory appears. And it's the, it's the representation, it's the expression, it's the shining splendor of who He is in all of His fullness. And that's what Moses is longing for. I want to see that. Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Remember that word face. Because we're going to come back to that a little later. It's very important. You cannot see my face. And I'll put in parentheses, yet. Verse 21, Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. Show me your glory. You know, we had quite a time Friday night in our prayer meeting. And I want to second what Pastor Quasey already said. Um, our Friday night meeting is very different from our Sunday gathering. There's a whole different dynamic there. I mean, the Lord shows up. And we hear things and we experience things there that quite honestly don't happen here on Sundays. And there's a freedom in the Spirit. We pray. We wait on the Lord and God. Every week He shows up in a different way. But Friday night, we were spending a lot of time in Isaiah 53. That famous messianic chapter about Jesus, the suffering servant. And there was a verse that Pastor Quasey read in Isaiah 53 after Sister Janet had first taken us there, and this was just going around the room. It was so beautiful to see how the Spirit was going from person to person and just confirming this whole message. But in Isaiah 53, I'm going to start from verse 1 just to get a little bit of the context. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, that's Jesus, the Messiah, grew up before Him, the Father, like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. And here's the verse that just pierced me. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Interesting. No beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you'll know that from the very day Jesus returned from the wilderness, full of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, like a magnet, He was drawing multitudes to Himself, wherever He went. Some of them, no doubt, were just coming to get something to eat, or maybe to watch a miracle. But there was another smaller group like James, Peter, John, Andrew 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I've given it a great deal of thought. These men didn't know who Jesus was. They had never met him before. This total stranger comes walking by, and according to Isaiah, he wasn't very good looking. Sorry, Hollywood. He doesn't look like the Jesus in most of the Jesus movies. He's always six inches taller than all the other actors. His robe is somehow whiter than everybody else. And he's just handsome. There's some of them, there's even like a, a glow or a halo over his head. I'm sorry, I wasn't like that. He wasn't good looking. And if you have a problem with your looks, maybe you better study this. Okay? He wasn't good looking. But when he passed by Peter, Andrew, James, John, these other guys, he said two words. Two words. He didn't pull out a resume and, you know, a long explanation of all the messianic prophecies that he had fulfilled by being born in Bethlehem and the Spirit of the Lord upon me, Isaiah 61. He didn't say any of that. He said, follow me. And he kept on walking. And the Bible says immediately they left their nets, they left their boats, they left their tax tables, and they followed him. You ever thought about that? Two words. And their whole life changed. I think we're going to see in a minute that they saw something. They weren't attracted to this guy because he was handsome, cool, good-looking, nice hairdo, cool clothes, latest shoes, and all that. No, they saw something invisible. It's called the glory of God. They saw the glory of God. And when you see the glory of God, your life will change. You'll make major decisions. You don't even have to calculate and analyze. He says, follow me, and you go. No beauty, no majesty. He knows he's king of kings and lord of lords. Let no outward visible sign that this guy is a king. Despised, rejected, it goes on to say, nevertheless, many left everything to follow him. I don't know about you, but I want to know about that glory. I want to know what these guys saw. And putting all this together, Moses, of course, was under the old covenant. He could not see God's full glory. It would have destroyed him. Because atonement for his sin had not been fully secured yet on the cross of Calvary. You and I are now under a new covenant. It's the everlasting covenant sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ, confirmed with the empty tomb and His resurrection from the dead. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, this is where part of my understanding, definition, if you will, of God's glory comes. I think it's a good one here. Hebrews 1, 1. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That would have been pretty cool, wouldn't it? To have prophets coming and going. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, 
Jeremiah, these guys that heard from God, that would have been cool. But things changed. In these last days, God is speaking a whole different way. God has a different kind of a message now than just a prophet standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord. You see, because in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Say that with me. Spoken to us by His Son. It's not just what Jesus did on the cross. He is the message. He doesn't show us the way. He is the way. He doesn't give us light. He is the light. He doesn't raise from the dead. He is resurrection. He is the message. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. Oh my God. And here it comes. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. Say it with me. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It's not hard to find the glory of God. God's told us where it is. God's told us where we can see it. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's grace, love, power, truth, wisdom, and all the rest. But now I come to my main scripture, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We read them at Christmas a lot. That's good. The Word became flesh. But it's good to read on Resurrection Sunday too, and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, because there's something very, very powerful here, which I think confirms what I said a little bit earlier. What was it that John and Peter and these other dudes saw when this total stranger passes them and says, follow me, and they go with him? What did they see? John's going to tell us what they saw. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him, that's in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. Not to be confused with John the writer of this. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to tes testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. What's all mean? How many men does God want to believe? How many women does God want to believe? How many children does God want to believe? He wants all to believe. 
verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. I can't prove it, but I almost think John was meditating on Isaiah 53 when he wrote some of these things. It's very similar. Despised, rejected, came to his own, his own did not receive him. Verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You know, being a child of God is, is an unusual privilege. Sadly, it's treated as a very common thing now. Oh, I'm a child of God. Big deal. Well, I just read here that the right has to be granted to you, to me, to become a child of God. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Here it comes. Read it with me. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Moses prayed, Lord, show us your glory. John says, we saw it. It has come. He made His dwelling among us. Now, isn't it nice when God visits you? But which would you rather have, God visit you or God live with you? <laughs> and not to get too theological today, but I think it's important to show this. In the Greek, John chooses a very special word that's for us translated here, made his dwelling among us. If you study this, and it's actually translated correctly in the Amplified Bible, I'll read that for you in a moment, it literally means he tabernacled amongst us. He tabernacled. And the Amplified captures that. It says, and the Word, Christ, became flesh, human incarnate, and tabernacled, fixed his tent of flesh, lived a while among us. Why would John choose that one word, tabernacled? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, whenever you hear about the tabernacle, Moses' tent of meeting, the very first thing that should come to your mind is the glory of God that filled it. And I believe John had that picture when he uses these words. He is the tabernacle, and the glory came and filled the tabernacle. We've seen it. Just like the Israelites saw the glory over the tent in the wilderness, now real glory is dwelling 
in a tabernacle called Jesus Christ. In Exodus 40, you don't need to go there. Last chapter, it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle was totally meaningless without the glory of God filling it. That's the whole purpose of the tabernacle. Make me a sanctuary so I can dwell among you. And then he says, we have seen his glory. He doesn't explain what he saw. He just says, we saw it. We saw glory. And the word glory here could mean dignity, honor, reputation, Whatever it is, in the original Greek word, it's something very apparent. It's not hidden. It's not secret. It's there. You can see it. And when John says, we have seen that glory, he chooses another word that literally means to look closely at. This wasn't just, oh, that's glory. Okay, nice. Oh, there's some glory. Okay. No, he was looking at this. He was fixed on it. And if you study the Gospel of John, it's very interesting. I counted this yesterday. Uh, glory or glorify, those two related words, you'll find 23 times in the Gospel of John. 23 times. No wonder he starts off the first chapter, we saw it. And as you read through the Gospel of John, he keeps coming back to this, the glory of God. The glory of God. The glory that we saw. For instance, in John 2, when Jesus turned water into wine. Another interesting thing about John, he doesn't just call these miracles, he calls them signs. They were more than just miracles. They were signs of who Jesus was. They were, they were expressions, I believe, of God's glory. Because look in John 2, verse 11. After he turned the water to wine, here we go. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. You won't find this in any of the other Gospels. What does it say? He did what? He thus revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. I've looked back over my own experience with Christ. The times where my faith has been stepped up. It's always come after I've seen the glory of God. And there's a connection here. Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. Jesus reveals his glory and they leave everything to follow him. There's a response that comes from us when we see real glory. And by the way, I've learned this very, very painfully over the years. You can't manufacture glory. You can't fake it. You can't shout it down. You can't pretend that it's there. And I've tried all of the above. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. We're in a dead prayer meeting or a dead 
church service and we got to do something to bring the glory down. So we turn the guitar up and we jump a little bit and we tell everybody to dance and we're still all dead because you can't manufacture it. Glory has to be revealed by the God of glory. We have to be in a position to receive, to see, recognize that glory. John apparently was very much in tune to this. It wasn't just a miracle. Most of us would have been, man, that was cool. He turned water into wine. Did you see that? John interprets it differently. Ah, this was a revelation. God was revealing something to us at that wedding. The glory. The glory. The glory of God. Go to John 11. Very appropriate for this day of resurrection. The story of Lazarus. Very strange story. Because Jesus loved Lazarus, and he received word that he was very sick. And we would expect him to drop everything, get on the next bus to Bethany, and go down and visit Lazarus. But he dawdles for a couple days. Then the news finally comes. Whoops! The guy you love is dead. Too late, Jesus. But in John 11, verse 4, John has a different way of looking at things. When he heard this, that Lazarus was now dead, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's... Whoa. I must be missing something here. This sickness is for God's glory. Not that sickness is something glorious, but Jesus realized where this was going. He knew the plan. It's not going to end in death. It's going to end in glory. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Do you see this? Glorified through it. <clears throat> and then, in his exchange at the tomb with Mary and Martha, they're all, you know, Lord, what happened? You know, if you'd come here on time, we wouldn't be having this problem. And picking it up from verse 38, John eleven thirty-eight, He's now standing in front of the tomb. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, he's been dead for four days. By this time, there is a bad odor. Hmm. This is going to take some kind of real miracle here. <laughs> Let me pause for a moment. A lot of times we wonder, Lord, why, where are you? You didn't show up on time. You let such and such happen and now it's dead. You're too late now. 
Let me help you with a couple of things here. God is never late. Say it with me. God is never late. He may seem slow, but He's never late. And I'll tell you a second thing I've learned. God doesn't waste any time. He doesn't waste any time. So He's not slow. He's never late. And if He's delaying on something, there's a purpose. There's a reason. And sometimes God just likes to get things really dead. You hear what I'm saying? I mean really dead. So that there's no human explanation. So when the God of glory shows up, glory will be revealed. And people will give glory to God. Amen. By this time there's a bad odor. He's been there four days. Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, help me here, you would see? You would see? You would see the glory of God. Believe, see the glory of God. Next verse. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. <laughs> I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe, in parentheses, when they see the glory, that they may believe. Next verse. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Three words. I've heard preachers say he, na he named him because if he just said come out, all the dead people would have come out. <laughs> Got to name him. We're only working on Lazarus right now. <laughs> what does he say? The dead man came out. It's so easy for us to read that and miss the power of it. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Was God glorified there? Was the glory of the Lord revealed there? Did Mary and Martha see glory that day? Did John see glory that day? I believe so. Next chapter. More about glory. John 12 from verse 20. Some Greeks had come. They wanted to see Jesus. They'd heard about him. And I don't know if it was curiosity or what it was, but they, they came and they said, we want to see Jesus. Um, so, verse 22, Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Verse 23. This is Jesus' response now to these Greek visitors that have come, I guess they've heard of his fame or something, and they want to see him. Lord, the reporters are outside. They've come from Greece. They want to interview you. Oh, give me, give me a little time to freshen up my makeup and fix my hair and get on a new robe here. Get ready for some photo ops. His answer blew them away. The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. And I'll prove to you what hour he's talking about. He's not talking about the resurrection. 
Of course, he knew that was going to follow. But the hour he's referring to is the hour of pain, the hour of suffering, the hour, literally, three days, that whole period of time, but he's using hour in a figurative way. This time for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. Next verse. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, first indication what he's talking about, he's talking about death. It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Remember, we're talking about this hour. Save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason. I came to this hour. If you're still in doubt, the next verses should clear it up. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is all about God's glory. Amen. Amen. Uh, let me let me pause for just a second here. We, I'm I'm including myself here. We're so self-centered. Even when we are presented with the truth of the gospel, we, we, we filter it through all of our selfishness. My friends, this is not about you and me. It's about the glory of God. God glorified Himself and His Son on the cross of Calvary. That's what this whole thing is about. Sure, there's a lot of benefits for you and me. Sins forgiven, eternal life, sicknesses healed. But the greatest thing involved here was the glory of God, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. Look at the next verse. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, that's the devil, will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You see, that's what church is all about. We're not about drawing people to ourselves or new life ministries or XYZ ministries. We're about exalting one, Jesus Christ and when he is lifted up, when he is exalted, people are going to be drawn to him. Sorry, you may be good looking, you may be a good singer, you may be famous, but this isn't about you drawing people to you. It's about pointing people to Jesus. Next verse. He said this to show what? The kind of death he was going to die. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You look at the cross. 
It's very hard to see glory there. And, you know, a few years ago when the Passion of Christ came out, a lot of people were complaining, oh, it's too gory, it's too bloody, it's too nasty. I saw it and my first reaction was, it's not gory enough. They didn't overdo it, they underplayed it. Because if you study the Bible, it was worse than that. He looked like ground beef when they were done whipping him. He was not even recognizable as a human being when they were done whipping him and beating him. Even before they nailed him to the cross, he was so disfigured by the sufferings and the agony and the beating, he didn't look like a human being. And so don't complain about Mel Gibson or any of these other movies. They come short of showing what Jesus endured on that cross. It doesn't look very glorious to us, but again, from God's perspective, He was glorifying His Son, even in His death. And just before going to that cross in John 17, we're still in John. Lots of stuff in here about glory. Jesus prays His final prayer before going to Calvary. And it's recorded for us in John 17. I would recommend you read that whole prayer very carefully because a lot of that stuff Jesus prayed is for you. <laughs> How many of you believe Jesus' prayers are going to be answered? Amen. You ought to find out what He prayed for you. I'll give you just a little inkling here. John 17 from verse 20 to 24. John 17 starting at 20. My prayer is not for them alone, not just for Peter, James, and John. I pray also for those who will believe in me. Raise your hand if you're one of them. Some of you, I don't know what you're doing. You're asleep or tired or we'll have to talk to you. <laughs> so he's not just praying for the disciples. I'm praying also for those who will believe in me. Through their message. Okay, this is getting interesting. That all of them... Oh boy, you know I'm going to do this. What's all? You mean all? You mean any kind of all? That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know why a lot of people don't want to believe in Jesus? They look at Christians and they say, you guys are always fighting with each other? Calling each other names? You all can't even get along. Why do I want to become one of you? Every corner has a different, you know, the first Baptist, second Baptist, third Baptist, and fourth Baptist. First Baptist can't stand the third Baptist, and the fourth Baptist hate the second Baptist. No wonder Jesus said, Father, make them all one so that the world will believe that you sent me. Verse 22. Huh. I have given. Past tense, right? I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Now maybe that doesn't excite you yet. 
It should, but maybe it doesn't. So we'll clarify it. Go a little further. I and them, you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know, same thing again, that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Here it comes. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Anybody have any clue where Jesus is right now? He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's not walking around the shores of Galilee. He's at the right hand of majesty on high. He is seated beside the Father. And He's praying, I want these people to be with me where I am. Why? Why? I can't hear you. To see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Why are we so excited about going to that place? Why are we so excited about going to heaven? It's not just, you know, we're going to be on a cloud playing a harp, listening to angels sing. We're going to see the glory of God. The full glory of God. Not just a glimpse like the three disciples had on the Mount of Transfiguration, but eternal glory in the presence of God. I can't stop without at least introducing one more short passage of Scripture, and this will probably take us some weeks to develop in our Bible study, but I want to at least put it out now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 3, and we'll read to verse 6. Even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, a.k.a. the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And I want you to follow these words very carefully. What is it that Satan has blinded so many people with? What kind of blindness? He's blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Stop right there. In our prayer meeting Friday night, God spoke something to me very powerful. I'm still chewing on it. But he brought this verse to my mind suddenly, and I realized Satan is very smart, and he's very specific in his strategies. He does not blind people from seeing religion. Oh, he'll let them see religion, lots of it. He doesn't blind people to all the philosophies of the world, good philosophies. Oh, he'll let them see that. But there's an all-out attack on people being able to see the gospel. The gospel. And if you look at this carefully, 
and examine it in your own experience, I think you'll confirm that. Satan doesn't mind you getting in a big long argument with somebody about, you know, the 12 gates of Jerusalem or this, that, or the other from the Bible, as long as he can keep them blinded to the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is actually three simple parts. Anybody can remember this. Jesus died, Jesus buried, Jesus risen from the dead. That's the gospel. That is it, plain and simple. And I have found in my own life and ministry, I have to continually come back and sort of retune myself, adjust my focus, so the gospel is dead center in everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm thinking, everything that I'm planning. Because you can get off on all kinds of tangents. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And he adds something here. Did you notice that? Satan very specifically is blinding the minds of unbelievers, preventing them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He doesn't want people to see the good news of Christ and His glory. His glorious death on the cross, His glorious resurrection, His, his glorious and soon appearing, and His glorious eternal kingdom. Two more verses and we're going to stop. Keep going. Verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves. <laughs> God have mercy on you all if we stand up here and talk about ourselves all day. Man, are you lost. <laughs> you are of all men most miserable if we're standing up here talking about ourselves. We can't even help ourselves, let alone help you. That's why we preach Jesus. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we sing about Jesus. That's why we exalt Christ in all that we do. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now pay close attention to verse 6. For God, who said in Genesis 1 verse 3, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. Paul jumped all the way from Genesis 1 3 to you and me made His light shine in our hearts to do what? Give us the light of the knowledge of, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So you see, when you were lost in sin, when you were in your darkness... You may not have realized it, but what actually happened is God chose to save you. You didn't choose to get saved. God chose to save you. You cooperated with Him. You repented and believed in Jesus. But He chose to save you. And what He actually did, in that moment, He commanded light to come into your darkness. And when that happened, what He really is doing is shining in your heart in my heart, 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Remember the face? Moses, you can't look at my face. Not only can we now look, the good news of the gospel is we are looking into the face of Jesus Christ. And the more you look, the more you are changed from glory to glory. I said this was the last verse, but I got two more. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And then, you know a preacher is really done, or almost done, when he closes his Bible. So, I'm almost there. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. You can start standing with me. We're going to read these together. Ready? Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, liberty. Next verse. And we. Raise your hand if you're a we. Raise the other hand if you're sure you're a we. And we, who with unveiled what? Faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I like that ever-increasing part. There's more glory coming. There's more glory to be revealed. There's more glory that's going to come upon your life and my life. The prophet Isaiah, he predicted these very days in which we're living. Gross darkness is coming upon the earth. The politicians, the governments, the nations of the world are in complete darkness, confusion, and chaos. Violence is reigning everywhere on the planet now. People don't know what to do. Confusion, confusion, confusion. Isaiah predicted it. Gross darkness will be covering the peoples. Oh, but something else is going to happen at the very same time. He says, arise and shine, for your light has come. And the, and the, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Hallelujah. I believe glory is coming upon true believers in these last days. We're going to shine. We're going to be blazing torches for Jesus. The people who are in darkness, they're going to see, just like Peter and James and John saw something in Jesus, they're going to see that reflection. Listen to what it says. We are reflecting the Lord's glory. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you're a reflector. You're a reflector. Father God, in the name of Jesus, your son has been glorified. Lord, he was glorified on the cross where he destroyed every work of the devil. Put every power, principality, every sickness, every demon to flight. And three days later, he was further glorified when you raised him from the dead, declaring him to all of the universe to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And God, you have promised us that that same glory is to be seen and to be reflected. You're changing us 
from glory to glory, making us more and more like your Son as we look into his face, as we bask in that glorious, radiant splendor of your love, your grace, your power, and your wisdom. Lord, we want to see your glory. You've promised to give us glory. Glory has already been revealed through the face of Jesus Christ. Bring us deeper and deeper into that experience. We ask all these things in the name of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ, forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. 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 Before we go, this week, if you want to see glory, look into the face of Jesus. Look into His face. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. If you have to, fast a day or two. Tell the Lord, I want to see Your glory. I want to get closer to this thing. I want to be able to say like John, I've seen His glory. It's there. It's not hidden. It's available to each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. God bless.